Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Navem, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. When we think of the term investigative journalism, we immediately recognize the courage, integrity and sacrifice of certain journalists to bring stories of major significance to public attention. And in their role as watchdogs, investigative journalists play a crucial role in placing greater scrutiny on the abuses of power and influence. One of the most famous examples in recent memory includes the Watergate scandal in 1972, which was uncovered by two reporters at the Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. The scandal and subsequent cover-up by White House officials and then President Richard Nixon rocked the political establishment and led to the resignation and subsequent departure of President Nixon from the White House in 1974. And Watergate is a perfect example of the deterring effects of investigative journalism. It reminds us that journalists will routinely search for facts and ask questions through a detailed or investigative process. But when we think about this statement, how true is it in reality? How deep do reporters really go in pursuing the context of a story? How probing are their questions and How complete is the information that they present? For example, if reporters attend a press conference and then forward their article to their respective organization, this is not an example of investigative reporting. Similarly, if they report on a traffic accident and interview those who are injured, this too is not investigative journalism either. The reality is that daily news coverage is seldom probing or investigative. It mainly focuses on the response of a public official and much of what we consider news are simply reports or reactions to official statements. Daily journalism rarely goes beyond what has already been said and that's because journalists simply react to unfolding events. And that's because they are tied to their daily schedules of news briefings and press conferences, which in turn determine what makes it to the newspaper or their particular online platform. On the other hand, investigative reporting does not just report the information that has been provided by the various sources. It relies on the journalist's ability to set their own news gender, to go beyond what they've already seen in order to provide something new and unique. And it involves the use of multiple sources to check for accuracy and establish context. Many investigative reporters uncover wrongdoing by focusing on what's known as watchdog journalism. And this looks beyond what is publicly proclaimed by checking the abuses of those who hold wealth and power, by by holding the powerful to account. And they're part of a long journalistic tradition as representatives or guardians 
of public interest. And during the 1900s, such journalists were commonly referred to as muckrakers in the United States because they exposed issues such as corporate abuse and unsafe working conditions. And the focus of today's episode will be the crusading work of one such journalist and his subsequent demise at the hands of the established elites of his own industry. And I'm referring to Gary Webb, who was an award-winning investigative journalist best known for his 1996 series of articles in the San Jose Mercury News entitled Dark Alliance, the story behind the crack explosion. His series incited a passionate debate and public outrage nationwide, not only about the American government's role in drug trafficking, but also about the ongoing outbreak of crack cocaine use across America and the government's highly touted war on drugs at home and abroad. He was famously persecuted for revealing explosive content alleging that the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, helped to initiate America's crack cocaine epidemic by allowing drug traffickers tied to the Nicaraguan Contras to ship drugs into the country and funnel the proceeds to a counterinsurgency against the already present Sandinista government. So let's take a look at the background to Gary Webb's story, Dark Alliance. Gary Webb was a staff reporter for the San Jose Mercury News, and from 18th August to 20th August 1996, the paper published a three-part investigative expose called Dark Alliance. It was also posted on their website showing links to court transcripts, photographs, and congressional reports. And it was one of the most explosive news stories of the year, stating that the US government spy agency, the CIA, was involved in an elaborate scheme over several years to import tons of pure cocaine worth billions of dollars into the US, which was then destined for the most impoverished cities in America. The proceeds of this illicit operation were used to fund the Contras, which were a CIA-backed guerrilla army in Nicaragua who were plotting an attempted coup of the socialist government there. And although Dark Alliance did not specifically implicate the CIA in specific cases of drug smuggling into the US, a point Webb was always clear in publicly emphasizing, his series did present strong circumstantial evidence that the CIA at least knew of the cocaine smuggling into the US by the Nicaraguans and did nothing to stop it. Webb also demonstrated that certain US government agencies offered bureaucratic cover and legal protection to some of the most infamous cocaine traffickers in the West. The series sparked public outrage nationwide not only about the American government's role in drug trafficking but also ignited a profound debate about the double standards operated by the US government in view of its highly publicized war on drugs at home and abroad. But even more sinister was how the outbreak of crack cocaine, which soon became widespread across America, was initially targeted at low-income black neighborhoods in the south-central area of Los Angeles. And more precisely, as mass incarceration rates rose throughout the 1980s, disproportionately affecting the black American population, 
the US government was praising the successes of the war on drugs policy. Webb's expose challenged the widespread notion that crack use began in black American neighborhoods. So let's now look in more detail at the specifics of the Dark Alliance series. The newspaper series focused on how the paths of three central characters had uniquely crossed to unleash a firestorm of events involving crack cocaine use in Los Angeles, which then spread to a number of large US cities hitting mainly black American communities the hardest. And these three characters were Nicaraguan wholesale drug traffickers, Norwin Menezes, Danilo Blandon, and a black American street dealer named Freeway Ricky Ross. One of Webb's key arguments was that the crack explosion in Los Angeles had escalated due to the activities of these three key people. And he observed that beginning in 1981, there was a deluge of drug trafficking into Southern California, where from the period 1983 to 1992, cocaine-related hospital emergencies jumped from an annual figure of 40 to 2,300. The popularity of cocaine continued to rise despite new measures taken by the FBI and DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And Webb reported that Blandon and Menezes were high-ranking agents of the Contra movement, formed, trained, and financed in part by the CIA. During the early to mid-1980s, their role as Nicaraguan cocaine traffickers was to sell cocaine in the United States through a distribution network created by Ricky Ross, and profits would then be funneled back to the Contras. He also provided strong circumstantial evidence that the CIA were aware of the Contra link to cocaine smuggling, but did nothing to stop it. And to understand the reasons why Gary Webb's series created such a public outcry, it's important to briefly mention the context which underpinned the story. So at the time, President Reagan viewed the Contras as allies in the global fight against communism. The Contras received funding from the Central American Task Force created by the CIA in their bid to overthrow the Sandinista government. However, Congress disagreed with Reagan's support of this movement and consequently passed several bills to halt funding for the Contras and thus began a covert operation whereby Nicaraguan drug dealers based in America would send shipments of arms and money to the Contras. In return, the contract would send shipments of cocaine back to the United States. And now that we have an understanding of the context, let's now turn to the first area of analysis in this intriguing case, which is the initial response to Dark Alliance. To start with, let's focus on mainstream media's initial disregard for the story, followed by their outright attack. And when the series was first published, there was an overwhelming indifference on the part of the big three major dailies, which were the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. Rather than explore the Dark Alliance series by analyzing Webb's claims and to create an open and fair debate, the major newspapers simply ignored it. Indeed, the big three chose to print their response several weeks after the original series, and this was done purposely. 
while the story was gathering momentum. And what happened during that period is crucial to the overall event. So in October 1996, a month and a half after Dark Alliance had been published in the Mercury News, the big three newspapers began to respond. And their response was very aggressive. Their tactics were to ignore the basic facts that Webb had provided in his series. Their own response relied on the weakest of sources with the aim of backing the US government and by denying complicity in the entire affair. Overall, the three newspapers had invested a considerable amount of time and resources to simply create holes in Webb's story and debunk the Dark Alliance story. Rather than investigating the actual thrust of his claims, and far from acting as a watchdog to monitor political and corporate power on behalf of the public, the big three proved themselves to be obedient yes-men in their role as gatekeepers to the centre of power. And most of the criticism were allegations of Webb's apparently shoddy reporting and poor editorial practices at the Mercury News in producing the overall story. So let's examine each paper's response in turn. Firstly, the Washington Post and its claim that there was no CIA plot. Howard Kurtz, media affairs reporter for the Washington Post, targeted Dark Alliance in early October 1996 in an opinion column aimed at casting aspersion on Webb's journalistic credibility. Essentially, it was the starting gun which set the scene for the big media attacks to follow. Allegations of CIA involvement in narcotics trafficking were old news, argued Kurtz, and that had been examined a long time ago. However, what Kurtz purposefully left out was that established newspapers such as the Washington Post Washington Post had downplayed or ignored the very same controversy a full decade earlier, specifically the AP News reports by Robert Parry and Brian Barger, the two reporters that broke the Iran-Contra scoop, and also the congressional investigation into the same matter by then Massachusetts Senator John Kerry in 1988. And two days later, on October the 4th, the Washington Post stepped in with its big guns, using a major five-story response to dismantle the Dark Alliance series from top down. The centerpiece was a front-page story co-written by its veteran national security affairs reporter, Walter Pincus, under the headline, The CIA and Crack Evidence is Lacking of Alleged Plot. The CIA links to cocaine trafficker Danilo Blandon, as well as Blandon's influence on freeway Ricky Ross, were rejected out of hand. Also, the Post questioned Ross's influence on the crack cocaine market, despite the fact that Gary Webb had actually interviewed Ross himself. And their story also cast doubt on the amount of cocaine actually smuggled into south-central Los Angeles over the period of a decade, simply by arguing that there was no more than five tons, challenging the much higher figure reported by Dark Alliance. And curiously, the sources cited by the Washington Post reporter for these claims were anonymous government officials. A couple of weeks after the Washington Post hatchet job of Dark Alliance, then came the Los Angeles Times 
presented its own version entitled The Cocaine Trail. And this was another major series that ran from October the 20th to the 22nd of 1996. The newspaper used an unprecedented 15 reporters and two editors, which one-time staffer referred to as a Get Gary Webb team to doggedly pursue the Mercury News investigation and its author. The three-day series began with a lengthy article by Jesse Katz, which again attempted to diminish the role of Ricky Ross in the nationwide crack academic, as described in Dark Alliance. Remarkably, though, Katz simply contradicted himself, because two years earlier he'd reported on Ross's dominance of the Los Angeles crack market in an article with the following lead paragraph. Quote, if there was an eye to the storm, if there was a criminal mastermind behind crack's decade-long reign, if there was one outlaw capitalist most responsible for flooding Los Angeles streets with mass marketing cocaine, his name was Freeway Ricky Ross, end quote. And this was published on December the 20th, 1994. However, Katz's latest article revealed the depths to which a major newspaper would sink to, to refute and discredit a competitor, especially if that competitor challenged the authority of the journalistic establishment. And fast forward two years to 1996, when launching the attack on the Dark Alliance investigation, Katz performed a complete 180-degree turn with the following front-page lead paragraph. Quote, the crack epidemic in Los Angeles followed no blueprint or master plan. It was not orchestrated by the Contras or the CIA or any single drug ring. No one trafficker, even the kingpins who sold thousands of kilos and pocketed millions of dollars, ever came close to monopolizing the trade. End quote. And the second day of the series was used by the Times Bureau Chief in Washington, D.C., Doyle McManus, to contest Webb's argument that millions of dollars in profits had been funneled from the sale of crack cocaine to the CIA-sponsored Contras. Instead, McManus downgraded Webb's figure of millions of dollars to a much lower figure of $50,000. And finally, the last of the big three newspapers to join the melee was New York Times on October the 21st with its bold assertion entitled Pivotal Figures of Newspaper Series Dark Alliance May Be Only Bit Players. And the inference being that the major cocaine traffickers that Webb had exposed, Blandon and Menezes, played an insignificant role in the spread of crack cocaine in the US during the 1980s. And it was a conveniently timed criticism of Dark Alliance, coinciding with the second day of the Los Angeles Times three-day series. The New York Times appointed this task to one of its top reporters, Tim Golden, and he produced a full-page spread inside the newspaper, attacking Gary Webb with two lengthy articles. But even more damaging were the accusations that Dark Alliance was nothing more than a conspiracy theory and the work of an irrationalist, irrational fantasist bordering onto paranoia. The big three newspapers also put forward assertions which Gary Webb did not make, and these include, firstly, that Webb believed the CIA was directly responsible for the crack epidemic. 
And secondly, the CIA deliberately introduced cocaine into black American communities. And it's the second point which I'd like to focus on now, that Webb was responsible for stirring up what was referred to at the time as a black paranoia. The easiest method to label Webb's story as a conspiracy theory was by claiming that Dark Alliance incited black paranoia. Throughout American neighborhoods in the 1990s, black paranoia was deemed to be a serious problem, firstly because of the CIA crack story, but also in relation to a historic narrative of genocide surrounding the AIDS epidemic. And such theories gained traction among black communities and served to fan the flames of race paranoia. US corporate media responded to dark lines with a barrage of stories to create the impression that public outrage was being fueled by paranoid behavior as a response to a secret US government plan to destroy black American lives. Indeed, black America, or at least part of it, was being denigrated alongside Gary Webb for being gullible enough to believe the contents of the Dark Alliance series. And this is confirmed by an article in Time magazine by a reporter, Jack White. He addresses the black community's public reaction to Dark Alliance by trashing conspiracy theorists who were keen to, quote, blame every plague that afflicts the black community on racist government plots. And so the traction gained by the Dark Alliance story was even more unique because it took place without the aid of the mainstream press. Instead, the story was catapulted through the internet and black talk radio stations. The main theme of the big three newspapers was to portray Webb's story as second-rate work based on unfounded claims, but more importantly, that there was an absence of a smoking gun in Webb's series. The mainstream press discredited Webb's story by implying a gross mishandling of journalistic procedure, putting forward a damaging argument of lack of irrefutable evidence. It was presented not as a missed investigative opportunity, but as a transgression of professional procedures by violating journalistic protocol and ethical codes. However, the major dailies failed to carry out their own investigations. And this is uh, so pertinent to the overall story because it reverted to this idea of professional protocol by utilizing the official sources of the CIA. And these close sources were indeed actually CIA officials and members of the Department of Justice. And so this brought into question the overall data gathering process of the mainstream press. The attacks by the big three newspapers on Gary Webb's investigation began to draw a close by November 1996. Meanwhile, any follow-up stories by the same newspapers or other US media companies continued to label the Dark Alliance series as a discredited investigation, emphasizing the lack of a smoking gun. And as a direct response to the issue of proof, Gary Webb wrote an article entitled The New Rules for a New Millennium, in which he stated the following, quote, the rules are being changed in such a way as to ensure that our government and our major corporations won't be bothered by nettlesome investigative journalists in the new millennium. 
When I started in the newspaper business, the rules were simple. Get as close to the truth as you possibly can. There were no hard and fast requirements about levels of proof necessary to print a story. And there still aren't, contrary to all the current huffing and puffing about journalistic standards being abused. Generally, if you diligently investigated the issue, used name sources, found supporting documentation, and you honestly believed it was true, you went with it. Period. End quote. And he goes on to say, Under these new rules, it isn't enough anymore for a reporter to have on-the-record sources and supporting documentation. Now they must have something else called proof. Investigative stories must be proven in order to reach the public. Having insufficient evidence is now cause for retraction and dismissal. End quote. And years later, Jeff Lean, an assisting managing, managing editor at the Washington Post, wrote in an article dated 17th October 2014, quote, An extraordinary claim requires extraordinary proof, implying that Webb's story had failed this crucial test. And both responses raise an important point about dealing with government agencies, which is what exactly is the standard of proof in a CIA clandestine operation, given that spy agencies are essentially trained to deny everything, and all relevant information is tightly guarded and compartmentalized. Furthermore, spy agencies will do everything in their power to cover their tracks, to deliberately leave gaps in the documentary trail. Therefore, evidence becomes open to multiple interpretations. And by creating a burden of proof in journalism, according to one argument, it will deter uncooperated stories from entering the public domain. But equally, it will silence a number of important stories which are factual and correct. Stories such as Watergate, which would never have come to the public's attention under this type of test. However, the most insidious aspect of these standards of proof is their plausibility, because in Gary Webb's own words, they sound so eminently responsible. He states, The burden of proof can be applied after publication, so lawyers and government operatives can be called in, bemoaning the lack of proof, and the bothersome story can be interred. End quote. He goes on to say, but somewhere along the way, it's been forgotten that journalism was never meant to be held to courtroom standards of proof. So let's turn our attention to another highly damaging rebuttal of Webb's story by the CIA. And this was the claim that the CIA was linked to the crack epidemic in America. The CIA claimed that any story linking it to the 1980s crack crack cocaine epidemic was mere speculation based on slanderous conspiracy theories. But when we look at this closer, the evidence of complicity can be traced back to congressional records, in particular the Kerry Report, and this was an investigation by the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, published in 1989 by then Massachusetts Senator John Kerry. While Kerry and his team did not find Evidence that the CIA had deliberately orchestrated the sale of drugs in U.S. cities. His conclusions were highly damaging, nonetheless. Quote, It is clear that individuals who provided support for the Contras were involved in drug trafficking. The supply network of the Contras was used by drug trafficking organizations, and the Contras 
knowingly received financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. In each case, one or another agency of the US government had information regarding the involvement, either while it was occurring or immediately thereafter. End quote. Even the CIA's Inspector General, Frederick Hitz, re reluctantly confirmed that certain officials failed to report contra activities to the appropriate law enforcement agencies, in essence turning a blind eye, and he states, there are certain instances where the CIA did not cut off relationships with individuals supporting the contra program, who were alleged to have engaged in drug trafficking activity, end quote. And in the next section, I'll focus on how these covert activities, which were in fact open secrets in government circles, were kept hidden from the public gaze, and to be more precise, how the CIA manipulated its productive relationships with the press. And the CIA continued to monitor the backlash over Gary Webb's expose as it developed in real time. And this is confirmed by an in-house CIA journal report on the Dark Alliance investigation, which was declassified and released in 2014, entitled Managing a Nightmare, CIA, Public Affairs and the Drug Conspiracy Story. And this report, originally written in 1997, shines light on how the CIA exploited its relationships with journalists over time. And their objective was to skillfully shift the media glare away from the message as outlined in Gary Webb's story and instead focus it on the individual himself, Gary Webb, and the Mercury News because they were the messengers. And its author, Nicholas Dumovich, described the controversy as a symptom of escalating public distrust in government. His six-page CIA report showed how, from the beginning, the agency continued to deceive and manipulate the news media during the press inquiries that began filtering in just after the publication of Dark Alliance. The CIA's media team would convince reporters that this series represented no real news because... Similar charges had already been made in the 1980s and investigated by Congress vis-à-vis -vis John Kerry and found to be without substance. However, in reality, Dark Reliance did indeed break new investigative report on several counts and both the AP news reports and Kerry's report of the 1980s had uncovered substantial evidence linking the CIA-backed contrast to cocaine trafficking and also the back-to-back -back attacks on Dark Alliance by the big three newspapers in October 1996 were the decisive turning point in crippling his story. And so at this point, I'd like to take a brief pause because we're coming up to a short break. There'll be much more to come in the next segment. See you soon. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Navem. It's great to have your company. So let's now examine the CIA's links to newspaper journalism, specifically how the CIA utilized its media assets to undermine Dark Alliance. The decades-long relationship between the press and the CIA is crucial to explaining the American public's distrust of the media during the Dark Alliance outcry. And in one particular case, there was a direct link between a former CIA asset in the media and the corporate press attacks on the Dark Alliance series. 
And this link was Walter Pincus, the national security affairs reporter for the Washington Post. It was Pincus who co-wrote the first extensive takedown of Dark Alliance in October 1996, which could then be followed by other media companies. And Gary Webb continued investigating Dark Alliance in the wake of those media attacks. And he was actually tipped off to a news article in the archives of his own newspaper written by Washington Post reporter Walter Pincus. And in the lengthy article, which was syndicated by the Post and carried in several American newspapers in February 1967, Pincus presented himself as an ex-CIA media asset in the late 1950s and early 1960s. In the article entitled, I was subsidized by the CIA, published in the Boston Globe, February 17th, 1967, Pincus wrote that as a young freelance writer, he'd been recruited by a US-based student organization funded by the CIA to infiltrate an international youth conference in Vienna, Austria. And so by the time Dark Alliance was published in 1996, Pincus had built up an enviable reputation as the CIA's trusted in-house reporter. Furthermore, the CIA and its network of cooperative media assets both domestically and internationally, have been the focus of several well-documented exposés in US news media circles over the past few decades. So let's now look at the final act of Dark Alliance and the subsequent demise of Gary Webb. The date December 31st, 1996 represented a turning point because it marked the last article to be printed under Gary Webb's name as part of his Dark Alliance series. Webb later submitted four follow-up stories to his editors at the Mercury News as part of the investigation, but the stories were never printed. And by May 1997, nine months after Dark Alliance was first published, the cumulative weight of public outrage over suspected US government involvement in cocaine trafficking Also, the government's vehement denials and the corporate media's discrediting of Dark Alliance were finally taking their toll. On May 11th, Mercury News executive editor Jerry Chipose announced in a 1,200-word open letter to the newspaper's readers that he had re-examined the series and found several shortcomings in the presentation and wording of Dark Alliance. Chipose's personal column printed on the front page of the Sunday edition stands out as one of the most curious editorial treats for a legitimate news story in U.S. press history because Chipose didn't openly apologize to readers for anything in the article and neither did he offer a full retraction of the series or indeed a detailed correction of what Webb had originally investigated in Dark Alliance. But in a keynote, he emphasized that the shortcomings of the series did not detract from an otherwise job well done. He stated... Does the presence of conflicting information invalidate our entire effort? I strongly believe the answer is no, and that this story was right on many important points. The newspaper subsequently abandoned the Dark Alliance investigation, and the Dark Alliance website was also pulled down. Essentially, one of the most significant news stories in decades had disappeared without a trace. The New York Times followed up on Chipose's retreat in a lengthy front page news article. On page one, they print, printed the following. 
Quote, it is, sorry, it is gratifying to see that a large segment of the media has taken a serious and objective look at how this story was constructed and reported. A thankful CIA spokesman was quoted as saying, The Mercury News comes clean, boasted the headline of an editorial carried in the New York Times the following day, praising the Mercury News editor for his actions, stating, Quote, his candor and self-criticism set a high standard for cases in which journalists make egregious errors, end quote. One voice that was notably absent from the opinion pages of the corporate press at the time of the retreat from Dark Alliance was that of Gary Webb himself. And he was denied a chance to respond in his own newspaper and essentially blacklisted by the big US media companies. However, Webb used the internet to issue a formal rebuttal of the retreat by his former paper. The only shortcoming in our Dark Alliance series is that it didn't go far enough, Webb wrote in a message posted to an internet discussion group. What Mr. Chipose's column fails to mention is that as a result of our continuing investigation, we do have evidence of direct CIA involvement with this contradict operation. Furthermore, he states... Despite the efforts of the biggest newspapers in the country to discredit our work, our central findings remain unchallenged. Only a fool could argue that the CIA's covert war wasn't a critical factor in the spread of crack from South Central to the rest of the country. Gary Webb was later removed from the Dark Alliance investigation altogether by his editors and then resigned from the Mercury News in December 1997. He became an investigative writer for the California state government and continued to follow up the Dark Alliance leads on his own, eventually getting his version of the story told in a book in entitled Dark Alliance, the CIA, the Contras and the Cocaine Explosion, published in 1998. However, Webb was unable to reach the same pinnacle of a success within the US daily newspaper business, which had previously exalted him as one of the best investigative journalists of his generation. It truly was a sad end to a distinguished career because what followed was a slow, deep slide by Webb into financial instability and emotional depression. After being hounded out of journalism, on December the 10th, 2004, seven years after leaving the Mercury News, Webb was found dead at the age of 49 at his home in Sacramento, California, from two gunshot wounds to the head. And his death was declared a suicide by the coroner's office. Three months after his death, the Los Angeles Times, not to be denied the last word on Dark Alliance, published a lengthy, unflattering feature article about Webb in the entertainment section of the newspaper of all places. They continued to besmirch the reputation of a fellow journalist who was unable to respond. Webb's rise and fall from corporate media was later told in the well-documented book Kill the Messenger by journalist Nick Shue and was also dramatised in 2014 in a Hollywood movie of the same name. In regards to Webb's tragic death, Nick Shu is certain that it was caused by the smear campaign against him. He commented, It's impossible to view what happened to him without understanding the death of his career. As a result of this story, it really was the central defining event of his career and of his life. So having reviewed the media backlash and the intense controversy created by Dark Alliance, let's now review what 
Gary Webb's expose achieved and what were the possible drawbacks? Firstly, let's look at achievements. Number one, what made the Dark Alliance series unique was that it provided a direct link between the crack epidemic and contra drug smuggling. His expose highlighted another human tragedy behind the crack epidemic. The massive rise in drug-related incarcerations, which had a disproportionate effect on hundreds of thousands of black and Latino people. Number two, the Dark Alliance series also touched a nerve with the American public because the story brought new insight into the hidden dimension of drug trafficking, thus opening the lid on the devastating effects of substance abuse. And in this particular case, LA's drug laws had devised a way to make cocaine cheaper and more lethal by cooking it into crack. Also, how federal agencies sailed close to the wind in terms of their blatant disregard for community welfare in some of the poorest neighborhoods in America, simply to pursue clandestine activities as part of America's foreign policy objectives. Number three, it was Webb and his editors who finally managed to bring this issue out into the open discussion by placing it firmly on the news agenda, assisted by the rise of the internet and also through black radio stations that succeeded in amplifying the key messages. And to provide an indicator of the magnitude of Webb's story, it's useful to know that when John Kerry's team published its reports on contra drug smuggling in 1989, the response of major press outlets amounted to little more than collective apathy by printing very short articles in the pull-out sections of their papers. But in contrast, the same newspapers devoted a huge amount of space to criticising Webb series in 1996. Number four, the groundswell of public opinion over Dark Alliance, especially from the black American community, led to three separate U.S. government investigations and four internal reports being released. Two of these were by the CIA in 1998, one by the U.S. Department of Justice that same year, and one by the U.S. House Intelligence Committee in the year 2000. And unsurprisingly, the reports absolved the U.S. government of wrongdoing and denied any illegal connections between the CIA and the three main characters in Dark Alliance. Number five, in many ways, Webb's investigation was the forerunner to future Internet-based exposés. And this is because the Mercury News website began receiving an extra 100,000 hits per day at one point, totaling 1.3 million And this was a remarkable achievement given that only 20 million American households had home internet at that particular point in time. But the biggest irony is that it wasn't mainstream journalism which propelled Dark Alliance as as a story. Instead, it, it was the regular channels of news transmission which had been replaced by user interactions with the internet. Number six, Webb reliably trace the crack movement from Colombia to the United States, highlighting the main logistical routes being used, and his findings were based on well-researched numbers showing drug movement and profit flow, and was therefore able to illustrate how siphon profits were being diverted to purchase American weaponry and training. So let's look at the possible drawbacks. Number one, over the Past 25 years, a great deal of attention has focused on Dark Alliance's apparent failure to provide a smoking gun or 
incontrovertible proof tying the US government with a international drug trafficking system. Indeed, the evidence presented was certainly strong and pers uh, persuasive, but nonetheless was circumstantial. However, this was largely due to the covert nature of the CIA operation, which I discussed earlier. So overall, Gary Webb did make minus mistakes, but nothing that would undermine the overall story. Number two, Dark Alliance was not perfect in its presentation, and there were several points on which the story could have been expanded on or offered greater clarification before publication. For instance, there were a number of factual claims or overstatements which could have been better addressed, and some critics claimed that the series created a tone of sensationalism. But these were oversights for which the editors of the Mercury News arguably deserved more blame than Webb, and curiously none of the same editors have ever been called to account to this day. So from the previous analysis, we immediately see that Dark Alliance was a well-sourced and robust piece of investigative work with very minor journalistic deficiencies. And interestingly, this explains why the most egregious assaults on Gary Webb were directed at damaging his, damaging his credibility rather than probing his skills as a journalist. Indeed, a useful comment comes from Glenn Greenwald, journalist and co-founding editor of The Intercept. He said, quote, The established media in the US is extremely close to the government and will react the same way the government does. Webb was subjected to scathing personal attacks in the press. The government doesn't even have to carry out the attacks because the media will do that for them. You saw that with Gary Webb going after him personally and ganging up on him, end quote. So given Webb's long experience as a journalist and his often cavalier approach to personal danger, this, this leads us to a fundamental question. Why didn't Gary Webb see this coming? One answer lies in his own Achilles heel, which is that he probably anticipated intimidation from the CIA because of the type of journalist that he was. But he was completely caught off guard by the attacks which came from his own journalistic community. The attacks from the big three newspapers could be explained by their professional jealousy. But to really understand this key point, of Webb's character assassination, we need to examine how the journalistic profession weaponized this concept of legitimacy in journalism and how they used it against him. So to understand this point, it's important to remember that the Dark Alliance series coincided with the advent of the internet age. And this meant that the establishment press was forced to confront the changing nature of the news business and how to maintain its control over mass opinion. This really did pose a threat to the legitimacy and overall authority of print journalism. Webb's story was portrayed as a sign of the looser standards that came with the transfer to online journalism and therefore required reining in. Through this reasoned approach of professionalism with its ethics of conduct and protocols, Hence, journalism sought to redefine itself as a profession and promote its expertise in the form of news judgment, ultimately to continue wielding social power and political influence. In effect, journalism created its own autonomy through a self-reasoned professional approach. So given the emerging internet, how did it frame the argument of 
operating within the free public domain of cyberspace. And to this end, the freedom of operating within cyberspace is equated with the rights and responsibilities of freedom of the press, in the classic liberal sense of the word. By incorporating quasi-freedom, i.e. adhering to certain rules under the banner of responsibility, and this paved the way for discrediting Gary Webb's story and hence set a new precedent for the guidelines of internet journalism. This attack on Webb's assertions now gains legitimacy by focusing on a permittable form of truth-telling as dictated by the profession of journalism. And Peter Cornblue referred to this as either responsible or irresponsible journalism in his 1997 paper Crack, Contras, and CIA, the the storm over Dark Alliance. And this binary definition of journalism is useful in an era of growing public cynicism towards both government and the institutional press. For many interested onlookers, Webb's approach to reporting goes to the heart of the debate over journalistic truth and responsibility. For instance, What is considered to be proof or journalistic evidence? How should responsible reporting be defined? Also, what is considered to be an authoritative source or an accurate account of events? And so in the final part of the episode, I'd like to briefly examine if there is a legacy to the Dark Alliance series. And before answering this question in detail, let's do a quick recap on the significance of Webb's expose. First, it has indeed stood the test of time as a classic, high-quality work of investigative journalism. Gary Webb vehemently stood behind his story and hinted there would be a part four to the series, in his words, with tons more information, but this never came to fruition. And one point of notable interest is, 25 years on from the Dark Alliance saga, the only establishment journalist to express any hint of remorse for the shoddy manner in which Webb was treated is Jesse Katz, former journalist for the LA Times. Overkill is how Katz describes his ex-newspaper's three-day attack on Gary Webb in October 1996. He states, quote, We did it in a way that I think most of us who were involved in it would look back on that and say it was overkill. We had this huge team of people at the LA Times and we piled on to one lone muckraker because... We really didn't do anything to advance his work or add or illuminate much to the Dark Line story. It was a really tawdry exercise, end quote. Furthermore, no one today would deny the sheer volume of evidence which has reached similar conclusions, including the previously mentioned congressional commissions, internal CIA investigations and numerous journal articles. The CIA were engaged in a covert operation, and once the details became public, the agency launched itself into a denial mode. And if the tone of Webb's reporting was sometimes provocative, what he reported on, though, was highly accurate. And Webb never stated or implied that the CIA had deliberately imported crack cocaine into black American neighborhoods. This was constructed afterwards by other commentators. Moreover, it would be a mistake to view the Dark Alliance controversy as an isolated incident because the link between the US government and drug trafficking did not begin or end with Central America in the 1980s. 
American clandestine operations were an integral part of U.S. state intelligence for many decades prior. And one notable example includes during the 1960s, allegations emerged of CIA pilots smuggling opium from Laos to Vietnam, highlighting the agency's involvement in the Vietnam, the Vietnamese opium trade. And in fact, these were first documented in Alfred McCoy's 1972 book, The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug, Drug Trade, and also later in Christopher Robbins' 1979 book, Air America. Rather, the real legacy of Gary Webb's groundbreaking investigation is to be found as part of an ongoing opposition to the censorship of news events and how one interpretation of truth is repackaged as hateful lies. The Dark Alliance controversy began as a spotlight aimed at illicit government activities, but soon morphed into a distasteful spectacle to ridicule an award-winning journalist and destroy his reputation. But equally, it exposed the real power relations at play because Webb represented a small regional newspaper that landed a groundbreaking scoop from the major league newspapers. And this clearly made them look bad, but more importantly, let's remember he was an outsider, not part of that establishment, and therefore was unwilling to comply to orders from government sources. This provides a clear indication of his integrity, but raises troubling questions about the influence of journalism in society, more precisely its legitimacy as a professional platform of discourse and the authority of its moral badge of expertise in controlling the flow of information. Webb was very clear about the implications of these issues when he commented, stories about serious, unacknowledged abuses never get printed, and eventually reporters learn not to waste their time turning over rocks if no one will officially confirm when something hideous slithers out. And once that happens, these they cease to become journalists and become akin to the scribes of antiquity whose sole task was to faithfully record the pharaoh's words in clay. End quote. So let's wrap up with a conclusion today's episode. As an investigative journalist, Webb broke one of the biggest and most compelling US-based stories of the last three decades. And there are still many issues which remain barred to open debate in the public arena, and yet this observation seems puzzling given that we reside in an age where our political leaders are keen to advocate the values of freedom, the rule of law, and the benefits of democratic principles. Similarly, over the past few decades, the US media is eager to accept plaudits for pursuing the ethic of objectivity as its core mission statement. This is embodied in a professional code of impartiality and rigorous factuality. Objectivity is considered to be a crucial tool for laying the seedbed of democratic rule because it creates an opportunity for neutral factual information to flourish, insulating it from the gaze of corruption and illegality which often characterizes public discourse. Indeed, practitioners of journalism on a global level will point to the American ethic of objectivity as a model to emulate because it is upheld by the power and prestige of the United States and its democratic institutions. But let's ask which definition of objectivity are we referring to? For instance, does it include the CIA's complicity with 
illegal activities in drug trafficking, which stretch from modern Afghanistan to the days when the agency was founded in 1947. Alternatively, we can ponder upon Gary Webb's definition of objectivity, which was to expose the truth as he saw it, uncovering illegal government activity linked to drug trafficking, which had direct human and social consequences on American streets. But as Robert Parry, one of the journalists that broke the Iran-Contra scandal, pointed out in an interview in 2014, quote, A different rule governs American journalism, which is, journalists need extraordinary proof. If a story puts the US government or an ally in a negative life, but pretty much anything goes when criticizing an enemy, end quote. Indeed, this is one of the forbidden boundaries that Gary Webb crossed. He paid for his transgression by a shameful onslaught of his Dark Alliance series and subsequent public humiliation by the big three newspapers. And in the final act of this tragedy, even his own paper turned on him because he was driven out of the profession and never held a full-time newspaper job again. Webb's sad demise is also an affirmation of status and authority stemming from the print establishment's pursuit of professional power. And as the spectre of amateur journalism rose from the emergent internet, this forced the mainstream newspapers to re-establish their professional protocols from a public perception, but also to extend their political reach to government agencies if they wanted to continue to sit close to the seat of power. Gary Webb was a transgressing journalist and it was necessary for the professional power structure eject him from the ranks because he was dabbling in a form of sorcery, in other words, the irrational conspiracy theory, and wielding a new staff of power, which was the internet. And curiously, had Webb's story not spread through the internet via non-professional practitioners, it would probably have remained a distant outlier, a deviation from the official line, and simply disappeared into the annals of arcane journalism. And in the final analysis, it's worth noting that it was not just Gary Webb that had crossed the Rubicon. The print media had fatally stepped across a red line too, because the newspaper establishment also descended to a new level of debasement. Many observers have commented that over the last 40 years, in light of many social and political upheavals, in particular the Watergate scandal, there has been a concerted effort to ensure the media towed the line with greater subservience and Overall, the media has been a, an obliging partner in this process, offering very little resistance. We only have to go back to the Iran-Contra scandal to see the level of press cover-up or the lack of objective reporting regarding WMDs in Iraq 2003 to observe that illicit activities by successive US administrations overshadowed the degree of serious investigation exposure. Nick Shu, award-winning investigative journalist and author of Kill the Messenger, commented on this. Quote, Once you take away a journalist's credibility, that's all they have. He, Gary Webb, was never able to recover from that. End quote. And how true this is of the modern newspaper industry, because once there is any hint of compliance and subservience to government dictates, the credibility of the media establishment vanishes, and this leads us to conclude that there is always a price to pay for subservience. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company, 
And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.